Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Well, you know, once a month, Dr. Robert Smith Jr. and I have the privilege of introducing to you a sermon, a great sermon by a preacher either past or present. Well, today, we have an extraordinary privilege of listening to one of Dr. Smith's own sermons. It's a sermon that he preached here at Beeson Divinity School entitled, Have You Been to Bethany? Dr. Smith, introduce us to this sermon you preached. Dean George, I preached a sermon during our Gospel of John preaching series at Beeson Divinity School. It's taken from John chapter 11, and the proposition that I present and I presented throughout the sermon at various intervals was this. Bethany exists in order to engender belief that will be transformed into redemptive activity. And so this is rooted or at least uh, juxtaposed with John chapter 20, 30 to 31. Mm-hmm. That's John's purpose for writing. Many other miracles that Jesus of Nazareth, which are not written in this book, but these things are written that you might believe that yeah. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And in believing, you might have life through his name. And, of course, that's exactly what happens uh, in the life of Lazarus. And eventually in John 12 and 1, uh, he is demonstrated uh, and, if you will, showcased uh, at the meal that was prepared in honor of Jesus as a silent witness of the resurrection uh, that took place as a result of Jesus calling him from the grave. I love to take the shape of the text and walk through it. In this case, I'm walking through this theological narrative verse by verse as an exegetical weaver is what I'm trying to do, weaving the text and weaving application, contemporarily speaking together, walking all the way through exegesis of the text, exegesis of the congregation. The themes, the main theme for me in this sermon was the resurrection. Four days that Jesus finally shows up to uh, raise Lazarus from the dead. Uh, They are required in order to give time for Jesus to die because he synchronizes Lazarus' uh, death and uh, resuscitation, actually, because Lazarus will die again with Jesus' own death. Justification uh, is another theme. And then I want to talk about resurrection in terms of Jesus leaving the grave clothes in the grave when he rose, but Lazarus coming out of the grave with grave clothes to show that Jesus leaves grave clothes for Robert Smith, who will need them one day, that Jesus will never die again. I close the sermon by allowing persons from our music department to play taps and revelé as a way of showing that taps signals the ending of the day Time to go to bed, time to inactivity. But Revelé is the morning song for the saint. It's time to get up. So Lazarus got up. And you and I will get up because he got up. And that's where I'm moving. Have you been to Bethany to see the power of the resurrected Jesus who gives us by his own resurrection power to live not only in the future, but to live today?
Dr. Robert Smith, Jr. is the Charles T. Carter Baptist Chair of Divinity here at Beeson Divinity School. He's not only a great preacher, but also a great scholar of preaching. He's written a number of books, including the best-selling Doctrine That Dances, Bringing Doctrinal Preaching and Teaching to Life, and more recently, The Oasis of God, From Morning to Morning, Biblical Insights from Psalm 42 and 43. Let's go to Hodges Chapel now and listen to my dear friend and colleague. Here's a great sermon by a great preacher, Dr. Robert Smith, Jr., preaching, Have You Been to Bethany? John 11 and 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister, Martha. Verse 17, when Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, some two miles away. John 12, 1, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. I want to ask you a question. Have you been to Bethany? I want to argue this morning. I want to contend. I want to posit this thought. That the road to Bethany exists in order to engender belief which will be transformed into redemptive activity. The road to Bethany exists in order to engender belief which will be transformed into redemptive activity. It is akin to the thesis of John who waits until the next to the last chapter of his gospel to give us his proposition. He says in John chapter 20, verses 30 to 31, many other Simeon, many other signs, many other miracles. Did Jesus of Nazareth in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these things are written that you might believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and in believing you might have life through his name. John 11 is about one thing. Chapter 11, verse 25 and 26. The one who believes in me, though that one dies, shall live again. And the one who lives and believes in me shall never die. And this faith is engendered and it is transformed into redemptive activity. For in chapter 12, at the house of Mary and Martha, Lazarus is there. A dinner is prepared. It's not a private seen at all. Jews come. Jesus is at Bethany two miles east of Jerusalem. Hostility is at its greatest and yet Jesus is showcased and celebrated because faith and belief has been transformed into redemptive activity. There is this celebrated, this celebrated family in Bethany. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. We get uh, a, partial, a partial portrait of that family in Mark chapter 14, verses 3 through 9. 
there is Mary who is anointing the feet of Jesus with expensive perfume and drying his feet with her hair. But Martha and Lazarus are not mentioned. In Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 32, 38 to 42, here is Martha. The Bible says her house, so I assume it's her house. And Mary is there. Martha is fixing Jesus a meal in the kitchen. And Mary is sitting at the feet of one who is the wisdom of God, listening to wisdom drop from his lips. But Lazarus is not there. But here we have in John 11, a full portrait of this family. There's Mary, there's Martha, and there is Lazarus. But this is a wounded family now. For Lazarus is sick. We know he's sick because the first five of the six verses of John 11 say he's sick. Verse 1 says he's sick. Verse 2 says he's sick. Verse 3 says that Mary and Martha send a text message, send a telegram, send an email, send a fax to Mary and Martha saying, uh, uh, said Jesus, the one that you love, phileo, the one that you love, you like, is sick, expecting Jesus to do something about his illness. Verse 4, Jesus responds to the facts and says to his disciples, uh, this sickness will not lead to death. It is for the glory of God that the Son of God might be glorified, which is a reflection back to John 9 and 3. What Jesus says that uh, this man was not born blind because his parents sinned or he sinned, but rather that the works of God might be made manifest in him. It's a wounded family. In verse 6, John wants us to know that Jesus really did love Mary and Martha, and yet he does something very odd. He stays where he was two days. What a way to show how much you love someone when an emergency has been reported and you stay where you are for two days. It is omnipotent inertia. He doesn't have to move anywhere. In fact, if he goes anywhere in his omnipresence, he bumps into himself. The word crisis and the word emergency is not in God's vocabulary. Here he is, waiting two days before he goes anywhere. This Jesus is one who oftentimes redeems by restraining and delivers by delaying. And sometimes he waits two days before he does anything. I don't understand this. He's not an ecclesiastical bellhop. He's not a theological red cap. He's not someone we can order around. Uh, he moves in his chirotic moment. It's interesting to me that uh, the, the, the God is talking uh, in a very big way in Job. Job never thought that um, God would talk behind his back, but Job... Uh, we'll find out later, reflectively, that God is talking behind his back. It says to the devil, have you considered my servant Job? Yes, but you have him under divine protective custody. I can't get to him. You have a hedge around him, and uh, I can't get to him. But if you remove the hedge, I'll, I'll make him curse you to my face. God talks in chapter 1. God talks in chapter 2. And then from chapters 3 to 37, God has apparently declared a divine moratorium on speech. Says nothing. In chapter 3 through 37, yes, he's referred to, but says nothing for 35 straight chapters. 
It is only in chapter 38 where God speaks. 39, 40, 41, where God speaks. And finally in 42, God delivers by restoring what Job had lost. 35 straight chapters. And Job has to wait on a word from God. How long can you wait? How many chapters can you wait before God speaks? Some of you right now are in chapter 27. You've got 10 more chapters to wait. Some of you in chapter 17. You've got 20 more chapters to wait. And some of you are in chapter 37. And you're ready to take and throw in the towel. Ready to give up at school. Can't take Hebrew because it's too overwhelming. Ready to give up on family. Ready to give up on design. I want you to know that chapter 38 is coming. And God will intervene. And God will speak. You just have to wait on him. You can't hurry God. You just have to wait. You got to trust him and give him time. No matter how long it takes. He's a God you can't hurry. He'll be there. Don't you worry. He may not come when you want him. But he's always on time. Jesus says to the disciples. Look, we're going back to Judea. And of course they protest. And they say to him. Now Lord you were just there the other day. And they tried to stone you. That's a fact. Chapter 10 of John verse 31. They tried to stone him and he escaped and they said if you go back there you're jeopardizing your life Jesus said by using a Jewish symbol uh, of dividing daylight and darkness uh, there are 12 hours of daylight and the rest is darkness if a person walks in the light that person will not have to stumble he's really talking number one about opportunities and limitations you remember what he said back in John chapter 9 verse 4 I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day for the night comes when no one can work he's talking about opportunities and limitations that you have an opportunity now opportunity is like a bald head man uh, with grease on his head who has one strand of hair uh, that's to the back of the head and as he comes towards you if you don't grab uh, him immediately then once he is past you, you have nothing that you'll be able to gather because here is the strand here and the back of the head is bald and slippery. It's, it's opportunity that you have now. He's not only talking about opportunity and limitations, he's talking about himself. He is saying, I'm personifying light. He says in John chapter 8, verse number 12, I am the light of the world. The one who follows me shall not walk in darkness but have the light of life. But he's also talking about their immature faith that needs to be stretched and massaged because the journey will be long. He is saying to them, there's darkness in him. And I've got to put you in a situation where you will trust me because the road to Bethany exists in order to engender belief, which will be transformed into redemptive activity. Stay focused on me. And then Jesus says to them, we've got to go to Judea and wake up Lazarus because he's asleep. It's another kind of double talk symbol. They immediately thought horizontally. They, they thought terrestrially. He's talking about vertically. He's talking about faith. Got to go wake him up. He's suffering 
to the point that he sleep and he needs to be awakened. They said, well, Lord, if he is sick and he sleep, he needs a good night's rest and he will recover. Just let him sleep. And the Bible says that they thought Jesus was talking about sleep. And Jesus was talking about sleep. He was talking about the vertical. He was talking about death, a person being dead and cut off from life. It was often that times in John, double talk. He was a man uh, who has a wedding and the wine has run out. And uh, Jesus takes and turns water into wine. And they didn't know exactly how he did this, but all he did was to look at the water and water blushed in the wine because water recognized that the creator was just looking at and something had to happen transformatively and uh, turn into wine. It's, it's water being turned into wine. Two hydrogen atoms and eight oxygen atoms and something happens because of the gaze of Jesus. He was a woman in John, uh, John 3, Nicodemus who comes to Jesus by night. And John thinks, uh, Nicodemus thinks that Jesus is talking about the new birth in terms of biological reversion. Must I wait as an old man and return to my mother's womb and be born again? No. Jesus is talking about being born from above. Double talk. John 4, here's a woman uh, who comes to the well and Jesus says, if you knew I was, I'd give to you a well spring up in everlasting life. She wants that artesian spring. She wants that bubbly water that will keep her from coming out here at Sychar at noon. She's talking about H2O. He's talking about himself. I am the water of life. Now she has met the seventh man. Her big problem was she had met six men who were the wrong men. She had been married five times, probably divorced by them. So let's not be so hard on this woman. The sixth man apparently she's shacking up with. But when she met the seventh man, she went back and told the other men, come see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Because uh, when you meet the seventh man, it changes your whole life. And Jesus appointed her to be the president of the missionary women's union because now she had a testimony that she gained as a result of being encountered by him. She's talking about water. He's talking about water. He says to the folk in John chapter 6, I'm the bread of life. They've been thinking about the manna. They've been thinking about fish sandwiches and so forth. He says, no, I'm the bread of life, 635. The one who comes to me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And here Jesus is not talking about sleep in terms of snoring. He's talking about sleep in terms of death. Like the Kings and the Chronicles, those books, those recordings talked about kings who slept and were gathered to their fathers. In other words, they died. And Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, I'm writing unto you concerning those who sleep. I don't want you to be ignorant. Concerning those who are dead. And they are thinking about sleep and he's talking about death. And then he finally has to break it down. No more symbolism. No more courteous circumoculisms. No more uh, analogies. Lazarus is dead. He has not crossed the bar. He's dead. He has not passed away. He's dead. And then he makes this ironic statement in verse 15. But I am glad for your sake that I was not there. Ah, that's Jesus. Let me say this to you. He didn't have to be there. 
for Lazarus not to die or for Lazarus to be raised. Everybody understands that. Back in chapter 4, verses 43 to 54 of John, Jesus is having a conversation with a nobleman concerning his son. And uh, when the conversation is over, the nobleman heads back home and uh, his servants come out and says, your son is healed, your son is better. And the nobleman said, uh, when did this happen? They said, around 1 o'clock, that's the seventh hour. He says, you know, that's when I was talking to Jesus. Because Jesus can perform long-distance miracles and he doesn't even have to be there. He can just speak the word. Folk don't always have to come to your hospital room if you know how to pray, if you know how to get in touch with God. The pastor doesn't have to always make a visit. You can pray to a God who never slumbers nor sleeps, nor has taken better than I since the day of creation. You ought to know how to get in touch with him because he's always present even when he seems to be absent. Ah, but I'm glad for your sake that I was not there so that you might believe because the road to Bethany exists in order that there may be an engendering of belief that will be transformed into redemptive activity for your sake I've got to put you in a position where you will believe when it seemed like all hope is gone well Thomas just uh Felt like it was all over. Verse 16, he says, let's go on. The Lord has made up his mind. Let's go on down to Bethany and let's go on and die with him. He didn't understand all he was saying because that, that would come out. Uh, Thomas would die and all the other disciples would die with the exception of John who would probably die of natural causes. If you, if you say being uh, put on the Isle of Patmos and whipped and, and put in oil and all that is, is natural. But still, he probably dies uh, from natural causes instead of being uh, crucified or assassinated uh, then the, the text says that Jesus when he comes to the environs in this chapter he never comes quite to Bethany because the authorities are there and he knows that this will precipitate his death and he has to die on time so the Bible says that when he gets there the, the body of Lazarus has already been entombed if you will for four days four days he waits two days when he got the message stays where he was when he gets to uh, the uh, environs of Bethany uh, the body has already uh, been buried uh, this is not good pastoral theology this is not what Dr. Douglas Webster will teach you uh, that when somebody dies you show up four days after the funeral I don't think you teach that I don't know uh, but since Jesus uh, is not in time, but time is in him. He controls time. I think he waits four days before he shows up because he has to give time for Lazarus to die. I didn't say he has to give Lazarus time to die, but he has to give time for Lazarus to die because he controls the time. He's so powerful that he can be on a cross. I'm looking at this now futuristically. And there he is in the middle of the cross. And there's one uh, thief on uh, his side uh, who wants to do business with him and traffic in uh, the, the avenues of eternity. And says, uh, Lord, when you come in your kingdom, remember me. Now, death wants him before anything can be transacted. It's as if Jesus says to death, shut up. Hold your peace. 
Don't you understand somebody is talking to me? I'm going to let you have him. But right, not right now. I can't let you have him when he's in the midst of an eternal transaction. Let him get finished and let me make this statement to him. Not tomorrow, not next week, but today you will be with me in paradise. Now I've given you time, death to do your part. Go on and kill him now. Because once you take him from me, he will always be with me. He had to give time. For Lazarus to die. And he had to give time for himself to die. It wasn't time to die. That's why he didn't go into Bethany, which is two miles, verse 18, uh, east of uh, Jerusalem. They thought he was already waiting on him. We already see in verse number 53 that the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin and the chief priests were already plotting to put him to death. Uh, right around Bethany. So he stays outside because in many cases when he wasn't ready to die, he would say, my hour has not come. But in the garden of Gethsemane, when he got finished praying, he said to the disciples, the hour has come. And the evil men have come to arrest me. Let us go because my hour has come. I think he has to give time for the disciples' faith to be stretched. It's been four days and y'all know the custom. You understand that when a Jewish person dies, that person is buried the same day. They are not embalmed like Egyptians. They are not mummified. But on the first day, there is the possibility of the soul of the spirit reentering the body. If that doesn't happen the first day, the second day. If that doesn't happen the third day, second day, the third day. But the fourth day, to show that the body is really dead, there is discoloration. And when the spirit comes and sees that, the spirit leaves and that person is uh, officially dead. I'm going to wait until there is an official, official conclusion to that. He is not swoony. There is not going to be any hopeless, hopeless, pocus, abracadabra. The man is dead. I'm going to wait until there's no hope at all so that if anything happens, you have to attribute it to me. It's not the prince of the devils, Beelzebub. I did it. He has to give time for their faith to grow. And then he comes there. Bethany is only two miles, verse 18, two miles east of uh, Jerusalem, very close to where he will be taken and will give his life for us. The mortars know that Lazarus has died. Lazarus must have been a very notable person. They've come to console uh, Mary and Martha. Musicians have come to play. In verse Number 20, Mary, Martha comes out and uh, she approaches him, Jesus, in verse 21 with this statement. Lord, if, she's iffy about Jesus, if you had been here, my, my brother would not have died. Which is really true because every time Jesus was around, at least a few accounts we have around death, death died. He overwhelmed death with himself. He spoke to Jairus' daughter, Talitha Kum, my daughter arise, and she got up. He spoke to the widow named son, touched the coffin beer and said, arise, and he did. And now he has waited four days before he shows up. If he'd been here, our brother would not have died, verse 22. But even now, whatever you asked of your father, he'll do it. You've got that kind of relationship with him. And Jesus says, your brother will live again. And her response is, yes, he'll live in the general resurrection. The 
that's the popular theology of the Pharisees. Martha didn't have a Sadducee, you understand, theology who didn't believe in the resurrection. But Jesus is not talking about the hereafter only. He's talking about the here and now. Because resurrection is a punctuation that signifies the continuation of an eternal moment right now. I have resurrection life now and will always have it. It is there. I am saved now and I'm saved for eternity. And so Jesus goes on to proclaim, I am the resurrection of the life. The one who believes in me, though that person is dead, that person will live again. But the person who lives and believes in me shall never die. And that's fulfilled with Lazarus. My, my, in my little church of years ago, the old folk used to sing, I done, died once and I ain't going to die no more. And what they meant by that is persons who are born twice, born of the flesh, birth certificate, and born of the spirit will only have to die once. But the person who is born once of the flesh will die twice physically and the separation eternally from God. It's the here and now as well as the hereafter. Do you believe this? There's the question. Do you believe it? That's what's going to count in our lives. Do you believe it? Can you mouth it? Yes. Mm -hmm. Can you theorize it? Yes. Mm -hmm. Can you get an A plus on a test by putting it down? Yes. But really what matters in life and ministry is do you believe it? Because if you say you believe it, the Lord is going to move a circumstance right next to you and see whether or not you really believe it. It's one thing to theorize it and theologize it. It's another thing when you have to look at it and say, yes, Lord, I really do believe this. It's what Carolyn C. James in her book, When Life and Beliefs Collide, uh, is talking about when she says, when faith is stripped to the bone, no marrow, no tendon, no muscles, no fat, no gristle. When faith is stripped to the bone and all our props and crutches are gone, our faith in God that he is good and is still on the throne is the only thing that will keep you going. I don't care what happens. If you can hold on to your faith and know that God is on the throne and God is good no matter what happens, then you can do what the brothers and sisters were saying. We will not be shaken because God is still on the throne. And she says in verse 27, yes, Lord, I believe, I believe that you're the Christ, the son of God. You've come into the world. All right, then you're going to have to back that up at the tomb. See if you believe it then. She goes and tells her sister Mary, whispers in the ear probably, the master's coming, he calls for thee. And uh, Mary abruptly, just got up immediately, abruptly, and makes her way uh, to Jesus. Because Jesus is still in the same place, verse 29 and 30, where it was when Martha came there to meet him. And the mourners thought that she's going to the tomb to mourn for Lazarus some more, and so they go after her. And when she gets there, she says to Jesus the same thing that Martha said. In verse number 32, she says, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. If you want to see the emotions of Jesus in the New Testament like you never see them in any other place, packed into two verses, 33 and 35, here it is, the emotions. Can't explain it. The Bible says Jesus, in verse 33, looked at Mary and 
saw Mary weeping. Cliusen, weeping, crying. And then looked at the mourners and saw them weeping and crying. Cliantas, weeping and crying. Here is his response in verse 34. The Bible says, he, inimi brisatas, he was groaning in his spirits. And then he not only groaned in his spirits, but idocrisan, he is troubled. That's too mild. That's what the NIV says. And I appreciate the NIV. Uh, but the, the Greek is really indicating he's angry, he's irritated, he's frustrated. Is that the way you respond to people who are weeping and crying? He, this spirit of, it, of irritation wells up in him. Why? I think he's looking at Mary as if to say to Mary, uh, I'm, I'm weeping because of your humanity. Uh, I can see how this has broken you up and hurt the family. And the last enemy is death. So I, I can weep with you there. But I'm also weeping because your faith is, is not where it needs to be. You, you know me. You know about me. You know I can speak. And anything can happen anytime. Your sister just said whatever you ask the father, he'll do it. Uh, Mary, I'm weeping because of your immature belief. I, I think that's, that, that's, that's true. I think he's saying to these mourners, I'm weeping because of your hypocrisy. Uh, some of these same folk who are weeping in verse number 37 will ask, why is it that this man who opened the eyes of the blind could not keep this man from dying? Some of the same ones who's weeping will probably be questioning his omnipotence. And some of the same ones who are weeping in verse number 46 will 46 will tell the Pharisees what Jesus did and they will plot in verse 53 to put him to death. You're weeping, but it bleeds into your hypocrisy. She's angry and here's this word in verse 35 where he says, look, I want you to tell me where you laid him. Come and see, he was, he was told. And there the Bible says that he just cries. He burst out into tears. It's, it's idocracin. It's uncontrollable, inexplicable crying. It's, it's Jesus weeping over our weeping. It's, it's Jesus moving into where we are. You know what the Hebrew writer says in 725, we have a high priest who can be touched with the feeling of our infirmity. We don't have a distant God who's just transcended. He's imminent. He gets involved in our fast. He weeps over our weeping. And then he does something about our weeping. He wipes away our weeping. The very last time that the word tears is found in the Bible is in Revelation 21 and 4. After that great uh, word that there was a voice that came down from heaven. The tabernacle of God is with men, with people, and they shall be his people, and he will be their God. And then that great word in verse 4, and God himself shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. <sighs> he weeps. And yet he will wash away every tear from that. All right, let's quickly go to Bethlehem. I want to know if you've been there. Because this is what counts. All the other stuff is preliminary. It's, it's circumferential. It's now time to get into the center. He gets there in verse 38. And the same word again in verse 38. This, 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 this weeping, this sorrow 
comes out. He weeps. He wells up with anger. And then the Bible says that he says, roll back the stone. You must understand that it's in a cave in the side of the hill where an opening is cut and a shelf is put for the body to be laid there and a circular stone that rolled in a trench was there and he's saying roll back the stone. The reason why you can roll back the stone is because you rolled it in front of the, the tomb. Roll it back. He really wants the, the persons who are mourners to be turned into witnesses. So I don't want you to observe. I want you to participate in the miracle. I really don't need you. But it's because of divine human instrumentality. I want to use you so you can tell the people this was not some hocus pocus abracadabra. I moved the stone. It's what the Lord says to Joshua. Tell the folk to march around the wall one time for six days and seven times on the seventh day and tell them to shout. They don't have any bulldozers or crane and uh, their walking around is not going to loosen any of the brick or the mortar. But I want them to march around so that they can see after the 13th revolution that nothing can bring the walls down unless God does it. And when they shouted, the walls came tumbling down. I have a problem and God does too with me and you. When we start shouting and praising God when the walls have come down, anybody can do that. You and I ought to shout and praise God before the answer comes, before deliverance comes. You ought to shout and praise God before anything visible has taken place. Don't wait till the battle is over. Shout now. Give him praise right now. Lift him up right now. Don't wait for the answer. Know that he is the answer and just say to him, I praise you right now. Robert, Mary has said in verse 27, Lord, yes, I believe. I believe that you're the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming to the world. Do you really believe that, Mary? Lord, don't embarrass us. It's been four days. Now, I know the NIV will say it's, he smells, it's a bad odor. No, he stinks. Do you know what happens when a person dies? When a person dies, there is deterioration. The microorganisms in the body begin to dissolve the organs. There is discoloration in the body. The body gets cold. There's rigor mortis. And then there is separation between the blood cells, the white and the red blood cells. And it's been four days. There's no embalming that's been done. Four days. He stinks. And God waits until that last moment. Four days when all hope is done. And wants to see, will you trust me? Mary, you said you believed. Do you believe? Well, finally the stone is rolled back. And then Jesus looks up because he wants them to see the source from which the power will come. Father, pater, father, I, Eucharisto, you, I thank you. This prayer has nothing to do with petition. He doesn't ask God for anything. He thanks God. I thank you that you have heard me in the past and that you hear me now. You know what he's saying? He is always in communion with God. He never has to open up a prayer by saying, dear father. He never closes a prayer by saying, amen. There's never a time in which he is not in communion. You've always heard me. You hear me now. We're always in communion. But for the benefit of those who are standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. Because the road to Bethany exists in order to engender belief, which will be transformed into redemptive activity. And then he stoops down, probably, and cries out with a loud voice. 
Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out. You see, God has never had problems with dead folk. It's always living folk. Dead folk obey instantaneously. Dead folk. And if you observe whatever happened to Samuel in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 28, when uh, whatever happens there, that this, this mystery, he says in ghost-like form, why have you disturbed me? Apparently something is happening that uh, is a disturbance when the living are with the living God in the afterlife. But the dead man came out. This is a wonderful picture of justification because there's nothing that anybody can do to raise Lazarus. He's dead. I'm going to tell you something. All of us are dead in trespasses and sin. And if we have righteousness at all, it's alien righteousness. If we're justified at all, it's because God has done something outside of ourselves to justify us. We are dead in trespasses and sin. But when he speaks, the dead hear his voice. And he has justified us, has saved us, and will one day glorify us. But the problem is still unfinished. The man is still bound. Uh, Jews took and put their dead in a sheet and folded the sheet in half and put the dead in the middle of the sheet and separately bandaged the head, the feet, and the arms so that when Lazarus came out, he really is shuffling. He's doing the shuffling. Shuffling. And Jesus said, loose him. Let him go. It's interesting to me that Lazarus had life, but he came out of a tomb shuffling with grave clothes on, which says that Lazarus still has the claim of death on him. And he's going to die again. But when Jesus in John chapter 20, verse number 6 and 7, I'm getting happy now. Because I understand what's taking place here. When Peter looked, when John looked inside the tomb, he saw that it was empty. But when he went inside the tomb, he saw that there were grave clothes, not on the outside of the tomb, but the inside of the tomb. And uh, it was not a, a grave break or robbery, but the, even the napkin that was around the head of Jesus was neatly folded and placed there because uh, he was leaving it there for you and I who have to go inside that tomb. And one day we're going to have to have those grave clothes on. But because he came out and it's the first resurrection from those who slept, one day ain't no grave going to hold my body down. I'll, I'll rise again. Loose him. Let him go. And Lazarus came skipping across the beaches of the Bethany Cemetery like a schoolboy on a college campus because he heard the voice of him who is resurrection and who is life. Taps is the most celebrated and memorable, memorable um, musical rendition played in the military arena when it comes to the end of the day. Uh, taps will be played. Uh, taps represents mourning. Revelé uh, is that celebrated part of musical renditions in uh, the military. When it is played, it signals the beginning of the morning. In fact, taps and revelé 
are played on the same note. Is that right, Doc? That's what you told me. <laughs> played on the same note. And the only difference between mourning and mourning is you. M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G and M-O-R-N-I-N-G. And God will help you to move from morning to morning. October 1965, Winston Churchill. He has been funeralized at St. Paul's Cathedral, Anglican Church in, in London. My wife and I were there. We went inside of it. And I looked up at that vaulted dome. Churchill had already uh, written out his funeral program. If you want your funeral to go the way you want it to go, you better write it out before you die. That's the way to do it. The songs he wanted to be sung were there. Scriptures he wanted to be read were there. The eulogies he wanted to be given, the persons who meant so much to him, read, he gave them. And at the end of the service, he, as he laid in the casket, there was a bugler who stood up in the dome and started playing taps, which indicates the end of the day, the death of Churchill, a musical rendition of taps. But the service was not over because he had in his program for someone to play Reveille. It's time to get up, it's time to get up, it's time to get up in the morning, which indicated that Churchill might be dead, but there would be a Reveille moment. As they overlap, taps and revelate together. these witnesses now will go and tell others that Jesus truly performed the miracle. For verse 45 said that some believed. Well, it was a taps moment. A taps moment for Lazarus. The people gathered there thought that taps 
would be the musical order of the day, but it was not. When Jesus said, come out, then Revelé took over. It's time to get up. That's the way it was on Friday. When Jesus died on the cross, it was really taps time. So much so that on Saturday, Peter got six other disciples and said, let's go back fishing. It's taps time. But on Sunday morning, my God, it was revelate time. It was time for him to get up in the morning. And so it is what Paul says to us in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. And those who are alive and remain shall be caught up to meet him in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. That's what Paul meant in 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52. I tell you a mystery. That we should all, all sleep. But we shall be changed. In a moment. In a twinkling of an eye. At the last trump. For the dead shall be raised from incorruption. And we shall be changed. Oh, brothers and sisters, I'm glad that when you go to Bethany, then Bethany is not the destination. It is only a temporary residence. Oh, yeah. I'm glad today that Bethany is just a drop by. Because he will raise us from the dead. I leave you on this note. Horatio G. Spafford came to that place in the Atlantic Ocean where his daughters went down to a watery grave. And he wrote, Oh Lord, haste today when the faith shall be sights. The clouds shall be rolled back like a scroll. The trump shall resign and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. The trump shall sound. The trump shall sound. The trump shall sound. And the Lord shall descend. Even so, it's well with my soul. understand. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.